So, dear listeners, we are about to start the formal um, start of this podcast, but but Brother Fap, who um, has been doing the plumbing, so there's a blockage in uh, the sink in uh, Tignatan's sitting still hut, and um, and I've been sitting here for a good few minutes waiting for Brother Fap who to unblock the sink. And um, and then I thought that actually this is Zen practice because uh, Zen practice is about unblocking blocks. It's about flow. You know, one of the core practices of Plum Village is go as a river. So um, we couldn't go as a river if uh, the sink is blocked. So um, I'm waiting for Brother Fapu to finish unblocking the sink. Brother Fapu, are you nearly done? Almost there, almost there. Dear listeners, give me just a few more minutes. Okay, so um, so uh, I'm going to sit here patiently because patience is also um, a Plum Village virtue. And um, and then hopefully Fapu will finish in a moment and then we can start the formal proceedings. Dear friends, welcome back to this latest episode of the podcast series, The Way Out Is In. I'm Joe Confino, working at the intersection of personal transformation and systems evolution. And I am Brother Fab Hu, a Zen Buddhist monk, student of Zen Master Tikhan in the Plum Village tradition. And dear listeners, today we are going to be talking about the family retreats in Plum Village, when for the only time in the year, families come with their children. And we're going to, Brother, talk about, in a sense, how the Dharma can touch the lives of children and teenagers. The way out is in. Hello, everyone. I'm Joe Confino. And I am Brother Fab Hu. So, brother, we are just over halfway through um, three weeks of retreats for families and their children. And um, this is very unusual in the Buddhist tradition to open the monastery, not just to serious practitioners, but to parents who want to bring their children to experience um, the joy of being in the Plum Village tradition. And um, we know that this has become a hugely popular part of the year, that um, it's become a hotter ticket than big music concerts like Glastonbury. We have people who are waiting with their finger on their computer to um, get their place. And, um, and the tickets this year sold out in less than two hours. Why is it, brother, that people want to bring their families to a Zen monastery in the south of France? I wish I can ask the parents this, <laughs> um, but I would say that the reputation of the summer retreat has um, rippled into many countries and many communities and many Sangha members of the wonderful experience that families have when they come together. And like you shared, 
there's not many traditions, um, particularly in um, a meditation um, practice center where it's focused more on more silence or deep teachings and um, base for adults. And it's harder to curate something that can can talk and can be received by children from um, I our program is is from six to twelve for children and then thirteen to seventeen for teens and then you have the wake up which are young adults and then everyone else but we we do have a lot of infants that come um, to Plum Village also and they don't have a program because we ask the parents to take care of them throughout the retreat. And I think one of the one of the hot ticket reason is because it is right in the summer vacation of everyone. And it's a very unique experience to be in a Zen practice center, particularly um, great gratitude towards our teacher Tai for for having this wisdom and having this insight to create a retreat where families come together, practice together, and transform together. And I think particularly in in um my my own generation of um those who grew up as Vietnamese in the West, we particularly are uprooted from our own heritage and our own country. And most of us are Buddhists, whether we know it or not. And being in touch with with a tradition, it's also learning about oneself. It's also learning about our genetic ancestor, our spiritual ancestor, and our land ancestors. And the importance of um, having a community that is practicing together where you can just flow as a river and not feel like you're trying too hard is what Plum Village has been able to develop through the years. And when you enter into a retreat such as Plum Village, people, and particularly I know children, those who are for the first time, I am sure there's a lot of fear. There's some nervousness. There's the, the fear of the unknown. It's like, what am I doing at a at a temple or a monastery? And then they start to realize, actually, the monks and nuns are human beings. Um, we're not um, so strict as they think. And we actually know how to smile. We can speak their language. And language is not just um, the, the national language, but it's also the language of today's time um, and our way of being with them expresses this is what mindfulness is. And we, we guide them through like meditation such as snack meditation or we do games to, to help them be more aware of um, the whole program, the whole kids community that is there. And it's, it just becomes the it becomes the Dharma in a very non-Dharmic way, which is, I think, is very cool because that's how I was introduced to Plum Village, which was just being in the presence of 
people, not just monks and nuns, but also adults, that are all in in the intention of cultivating loving kindness, um, compassion, presence, and discovering themselves, and that collective energy. The children, which are like sponges in a way, they they don't learn through just the spoken language, but they learn through the invisible dharma, which is just the way of being. And I particularly was very impacted from my first retreat. I don't remember any dharma, but I just remember how fun it was, um, without electronics, without video games, um, and. My dad was truly happy, and that was so important for me. Now that I reflect on my childhood, like what are the gems in my upbringing, and one that stands out very clearly is when my parents are in Plum Village, because somehow Plum Village um, energy and the creation of the space that is being um, developed together. Everybody's co-creating this retreat, and we get to just be ourselves and try and not not try to compete with each other. We're not competing to who's the more mindful person um, or who's going to become the Buddha first, you know. And then everybody is like slowly unlayering all of the masks that they're wearing, as well as starting to. Embrace and accept themselves, and that particular presence has a very deep impact on a child, and it also gives hope because if we live in a family or if we live in a society that is very broken, um, a lot of violence, a lot of anger and hatred, then we think this is the world. And a retreat such as even one week, seven days, you start to see there's another way of life. There's another way of being. There's another way of seeing. There's another way of communicating. That can definitely shift a child's whole perspective of the world. And the summer retreat, particularly, um, I would say in Thai's language, is sowing seeds at a very young age. And letting them already touch happiness, touch stillness, touch joy, excitement, um, and fun without any um, outer entertainment or substance outside, such as drugs and alcohol and loud music and so on. And just realizing that it does take a community. This is ancient wisdom. It does take a community to help. Grow a child, and for me, the growing is not like being beside them and like guiding them, but the growing is just also the way I am conducting myself is impacting somebody who is right next to me, even though I'm not speaking to them. But my way of being is already a transmission. So the summer retreat has developed through the years, um, focusing on families because we know that. A family is a foundation for for anyone. For for many of us, it's it's the start of our journey, and 
a lot of our friends don't have the wonderful conditions of coming from a loving family um, and a family that expresses care and attention and so on. And so in spirituality, we speak of a spiritual family and sometimes the spiritual family is more powerful than our own um, genetic family because family for me is like a home and when we think of home we think of the element of safety um, the element of warmth the element of understanding and the element of being supported and not all of us um, have that fortune in our own blood family but life can take us in many direction and a spiritual community can create a bond that is like a spiritual family. And a lot of my own brothers and sisters, my spiritual brothers and sisters, I feel like they truly do understand me at a much deeper level than my own blood family. And vice versa, I feel like there are some of my monastic siblings that I feel they are me. Their happiness is definitely my happiness. Their suffering is definitely my suffering. Their journey is my journey. And so this thread of connection, um, it's really a part of the Buddhist foundation. Um, When the Buddha became enlightened, the first thing he did was to create a community. And I would even say that the Buddha's journey goes all the way back to the support of children. One of my favorite book of Thai is Old Path White Clouds. And it's Thai's masterpiece in writing the story of the Buddha through the eyes of an untouchable boy who was one of the buffalo boy who cut the grass that offered to the Buddha so that he can have a cushion to sit on. And with um, the girl who the Buddha met who saw the Buddha fainted and gave him milk and then every day brought offering of food so that he had that condition to practice, which then led to his enlightenment. So part of the um, the non-Buddha elements are the children. So in a way, it's so beautiful to see that what we're doing may seem new, but at the, at the core of it, it's not. We're going exactly back to the beginning, which are the children are the conditions that have helped our root teacher, the Buddha, become um, um, having the conditions for him to reach enlightenment. And then in our times, the children we see are not only the future, but it is our future. And when we learn to care for a child, we're also learning to care for the child within us. And this is my own practice and my own insight that when I, when I have been in touch with children and the diversity of the children, and of course they're loud, sometimes they're very messy, sometimes they're very naughty. They're all opportunities to truly practice with all of these emotions that come up. And ask myself, why am I so angry? 
And I realized because all of those qualities are also inside of me, the qualities that that makes me suffer, that I'm running away from. And so when I see it, it's a mirror for me. But at the same time, how do I transform that in me? And how do I still show up and accept them for for the beauty that they are, which is also accepting myself? And so there is this beautiful, um, I would say in my own, this beautiful dance within the the inner child and the outer child, which are the physical children that come to Plum Village. So, you know, this is just like the spiritual side. And then on the other side, the families are just so happy when they're together here. And not not everyone is happy. You know, I, I just have to put this out there. There are some children who truly suffer when they come for the first few days and they even get really angry, like why their parents even brought them here. And the beauty is the other children brings them in. And we do a lot of sport here. We do a lot of um, singing, even just different types of activity, depending on our our monastic holding the group, as well as all the, the volunteers. And there are now elements of the happy farm, which we bring the children to the happy farm, getting in touch with the nature, seeing the potatoes, help harvesting the um, cucumbers, the tomatoes, and just very basic things that actually give so much life to the children. Um, and then one of the most powerful moments are the beginning of new practices that the children and parents do together, normally on day six of the retreat. And it's when um, the parents would would have a moment to, to share from the heart to the child um, the, the gratitude that they have towards their child. And they would water some of the beautiful flowers and then even have a moment to express a regret um, as well as to, to, to share something deep down from their heart, what they truly wish for their child. And then the child would do the same. And it's a very, maybe one of the highlights of our retreats sometimes is these moments that you see the mother and the father being able to express to their children and their children listening and then vice versa. And just happy tears, the embrace. And I think these moments, it may, it may happen once, but it may be the vitamin that that is um, has unlimited energy throughout someone's journey. Wow, brother, thank you for all that. And and um, what you were just saying at the end reminds me, I mean, and we've talked about it on other episodes, but the importance of time and space that um, even when people go on normal holidays, they're always trying to keep their kids happy and they're always trying to arrange things. And here it's about calming down and having time. And I know at retreats um, that I've been part of, sometimes the parents, or sometimes people who are parents, recognize during the retreat that when they're with their children, they're not really listening to their children, that they're thinking about their projects and thinking about what they should be doing and what they haven't done. And a lot of people realize that actually just the most simple thing is that what children want is 
the presence of the parents to to know that they're seen and that they're being listened to and that when they say something it's being responded to and that if children are speaking or wanting to say something and the parents are absent-minded or not present then actually that can create some very real diff- psychological difficulties for children feeling not heard feeling not respected feeling uh, not cared for so just the art of slowing down and as you say being in an atmosphere where other people are supporting that creates this extraordinary opportunity just for people to be together um you mentioned uh when you started fapu that um that obviously thai this is not something you've invented in the last year or two that that this was in fact central to all of thai's retreats that when children were present that he would always start off his Dharma talks by spending 15 minutes with the children and teenagers and gave them a a talk specifically for them. Um, And on his walking meditations, he would always hold the hands of children and the children would be up front, not sort of walking at the back, but would be walking with Tai at the front. I'm just wondering if you can talk about Tai's relationship to children and also I think the way he spoke to them because he spoke to them in a very beautiful, direct way. He didn't treat them as, oh, you're young, I don't have to bother. He spoke to them as human beings in the same, might have used different language, but he gave them a lot of respect. Mm. Yeah, Tai was such a skillful teacher and his um, way of being because he knew that every action that he produced through body, speech, and mind is a transmission. And we, we, I, I think we forget that children are natural mindfulness observer. <laughs> like they, they had the seed and maybe it's, it's, it's actually, it's, it's when it's so, it's so present because their sense, you know, their, their own, um, curiosity, which is one of the factors of enlightenment is to investigate, to be curious, to, to see and to ask. And so a child already is so curious and they're soaking in through their senses, their eyes, their ears, their smell, their contact and so on. And so Tai's um, way of being with children is, is definitely beyond the words. It's his way of seeing them. He would look at them in their eyes when he speaks to them. He would motion them to come closer to him during the Dhamma talk. And in his later years, he would even invite one child to sit next to him while he's giving a Dhamma talk to like 800 people. And in a way, I feel like there's so many layers to to what is happening. So this is all of my perception and what I observe. It's, it's also a way of showing adults who are present that there is, we we can be with a child in a way that we see them as us and we see them that they do have the seeds of mindfulness. They do have the capacity, the capacity to understand even some of the deepest teaching. Tai would teach them um, the teachings on non-discrimination. And he uses the example of his two hands where he would um, share that, you know, his right hand 
is very productive in his lifetime. It is written all of the poems, all of the books, the calligraphies. Only one poem that was written by both hand on a typewriter by by him, but everything was done by the right hand, and and it seems like the left hand has done nothing, and so by looking. From a bird's eye view, it seems like there's a superior and an inferior um, pair of hands. And Tai would say in his uh, in his teachings that there was one day he was hanging a frame, and the left hand was holding uh, a nail, and the right hand the hammer. And accidentally, the Tai's mindfulness wasn't there, so his right hand with the hammer accidentally hit the left hand. And in that moment, you know, everybody laughs because everybody knows exactly what where Tai is going. But then Tai stops and he says, "In that moment, do we think that the left hand is angry and is criticizing and judging and wanting to punish back and say, 'Give me that hammer and I want justice.' But actually, the the teaching of non discrimination is already in us." Which is at that very moment, the right hand would put the hammer down. Without non-self, it takes care of the left hand as it is taking care of itself, and so that our own two hands has the insight of non-discrimination. And Tai teaches this to the children, and he would always link it to siblings, to mother and father. To community, you we start to see each other like two hands, and the beauty of this is also when Tai is teaching to the children, the adults thinks Tai is only speaking to the children and not to the adults. So the adults are all very relaxed, so they're actually taking it in and they remember these the children's teaching more than the adult teaching, which they. Go to headspace level, and they use their intellect more to un- and try to grasp what Tai is teaching. But when the he's teaching the children, it's so relaxed. They're so relaxed, and and his tone and his Tai's humor is is very present when he's with the children. And like he would, you know, put his hand at his waist and make a motion like if the left hand's like. This is injustice. Give me back that right hand. Uh, give me back that hammer, and I want justice. I'm gonna beat you up, and you know, like he he just becomes one with them. And for me, this is also breaking the concept of what a Zen monk is or a spiritual practitioner is. We we should be, you know, um, serene and and and. I don't know, like all the stereotypes that we get as as Zen monastics or as monastics in general, we shouldn't be laughing or 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 whatever, and you know, just this ease that Tai is offering definitely has a deep penetration to the mind consciousness, the store consciousness, and the collective of everyone. And children would fall asleep during his talk. Even infants. I remember one time, you know, there was a mother who was breastfeeding in the meditation hall, which in the Eastern culture, like this would this was like, oh whoa, you don't do this in a holy space, you know. And 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 I I remember that Tai even spoke to that. 
Thai acknowledge because Thai was so skillful because maybe when the child is crying, the mother feels so much shame, but the mother really wants to be there. And what the the child needs is the milk, and and maybe the mother is would do anything in her capacity to care for the child, and as as well as take care of herself, which is to be in this retreat. And Thai was so skillful in one Dharma talk, and it was amongst I don't eight hundred people. And Thai said, in this moment of giving this Dharma. I know that there's also another dharma that is being offered, which is the collective energy, and there is a baby on Thai's right that is being cared for by the mother's milk, but also by the collective energy of everyone. And and he said, and this energy is like the milk of mindfulness that we're also offering to the child. So Thai was just so skillful. He probably. Was able to see the emotions and the um, body gesture from the mother, which probably is has some shame. And Tai said, "It's okay because in this moment, the baby is even being embraced." And Tai said that the baby may not understand the words, but the collective energy is what the baby is absorbing. And so, knowing that. When we have awareness such as this, and Thai, this is a deep teaching, meaning all of you who are present, we are co-creating this environment for this child. So be mindful of your thoughts, be mindful of your speech, be mindful of your presence, because it is having a transmission that is invisible, just like radio signals that one can receive. So just such skillfulness and such art of a teacher Thai is. Mm. Thank you. Beautiful story. And um, and one of the other things Ty used to do was um, normally in retreats there'd be one morning where he would do questions and answers, and um, and he would always give the first period of time to the children to ask. And what I remember is that often the children ask the most profound questions, and also they were able to bring out. Thai's humor because a lot of people don't recognize or haven't been haven't had the experience of Thai Thai's humor and he was very funny he was a very funny Zen master and I remember one child once asking Thai said why do monks shave their hair why do monks shave their head and Thai immediately said so that we can save on the shampoo and it was just you know it's just masterful but but also, brother, I don't know if you have any memory of, you know, just the depth of questions that mm. young children would ask. That that you know, often an adult would ask quite a, sometimes quite convoluted questions, or as you said, uh, questions from the intellect. And children would offer the most profound questions that actually drew out some of the deepest teachings of Thai. Mm. I remember one child asking Thai, um, "What is the meaning of life?" and And I think 
I think all of us we have that question, and th- there was some laughter in the audience because, like, like I I think it comes from like what does a child know about life to even ask that question, but Tai takes it very seriously, and Tai would allow the 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 whole audience to laugh and to enjoy the moment, um, but then Tai would definitely answer as if the child. Not as if he knows the child is really seeking um, um, an answer. And Tai, one time, um, he said, "In if I remember correctly," and Tai is like, "What is the meaning of life? It is to be so present, so that we can love, so that we can see our interconnectedness with all the ones that are around us." And he said to the child, "Your parents, your brother, your sister, even though sometimes they make you angry, deep down inside you do love them. And maybe our whole journey of life is not to learn about it, but is to live the message of love. And just as simple as that. And I think, like for me, I it hit a core in me. I'm like, because so much of us we do search for." The longing of, of being accepted, and maybe that is a search for so many of us of life to be accepted, to be seen, to be heard, and and then Tai always bring it back to oneself. And Tai said, "But the most important thing is that we also learn to have the capacity to love ourselves, because loving ourselves is loving the whole cosmos. Because when we love ourselves." We want to protect and care for ourselves. So when we love ourselves, and we learn to love others, we do it in that same understanding, just like the two hands. So that is very profound, deep, and lifetime practice. And the child listening, Tai is so sowing a very powerful seed. In that child, mm. and so I th- I see that every time um, Tai hears a question, and it, it may be very standard or basic from a child, but as a Zen master, he would make it a very deep moment where he would give a very deep answer, um, which he knows it will it will benefit so many people in that space. Thank you, brother. Um, I just want to ask you to talk a little bit about. The different age groups that come to Plymouth Village and how you work with them. Mm. So you said that um, the first age group that you work with at the youngest age is six and up. Um, and I just wonder if you could share a bit with our listeners about what you can do with a six-year-old in terms of the practice, because I know that there are certain things you do, like a pebble meditation, which is very simple ways of helping them to to see beyond the mind and into into get into their true feelings but well how do you work with someone who's six seven or eight years old what what can you do mm, thank you um so we do divide among the children and i i i have i haven't been in the children program for a very long time so Throughout the last like ten years, it's been mainly my brothers and sisters taking care of them. But I always check in, and I and I see them around the hamlet. So, um, 
what I do know is that we split the the age group. So like six to eight is one group, and then I believe nine, um, nine and ten, and eleven, twelve, and it depends on each year um, the the group of numbers of kids that we have. So we we teach them how to invite the bell. So we we use physical action as as a way of meditation with them. So one of the principles in Plum Village is whenever all of us, whoever is in Plum Village, whenever we hear the sound of the bell, everybody stops and comes back to the breathing, their mindfulness of breathing to to bring out the awareness of life in the present moment from the youngest child and and I would I would even share it, even the infants that are only nine months practice it because collectively everybody is still and coming back to their breath. Even the infant is practicing by its observation. So for the children, we would in, um, teach them how to invite the bell for one day. We would share, like we, we would teach them, we don't say we hit the bell or we strike the bell. We even use language, how important language is. And we say, for us, the bell is a Dhamma instrument as well as it is a teacher, as well as it is a friend. So when we, when we want to um, strike the bell, we say we invite the bell. We invite the bell to sound so that everyone can practice coming back to their breathing. So that is one example of a teaching that we would offer and then we would instruct them how and so on. And then each children would learn to be a bell master and each child would have an, a moment if, if the chance come up in the retreat for them to be a bell master. And we, we have these Dharma sharing families and we have dinners together and each facilitator always starts with three sounds of the bell. And so we would invite a child to do it to practice it right away. And the child, you know, when they get to do this offering, they feel so seen and so a part of something. And we would even invite them to read a contemplation and so on. Another practice is what you just mentioned, the four pebbles. The pebble meditation is um, a wonderful Dhamma door that our teacher created where there is a form you Tai would invite the children to go and find four pebbles, each pebble representing an element in, in cultivating in our practice, such as flower fresh, mountain solid, um, still water reflecting, and space, which is freedom, inner space and outer space. And we would teach them and they would take it in. They would understand it. And then um, teaching them using stories of the Buddha or stories in life about the importance of the care for Mother Earth and and just numerous different ways of teaching of kindness, of compassion, of speech. And then when we when we do snack meditation, like we would we would teach them before receiving to bow and then to receive it with two hands. And then to take a cookie or to take a fruit and then wait that everybody has one and then we eat together. So just a simple daily activity and we make, we add an element of presence, an element of care, an element of awareness that others are there with us. 
and then a lot of sport. <laughs> um, and then happy farm, like I mentioned, walks. And then you know the children they create their own subgroups within <laughs> within the retreat, and it's beautiful how it's formed, and also the teenage program that manifests too. And uh, I think I shared in the last podcast how how one of my highlights of one of the one of the week in the retreat was to be with them, and we had one group that was all the boys, and you always have alphas, you know, in the groups, and. When they are so present and so loving, and so inclusive, it gives me so much hope. It gives me so much happiness, and we see such good seeds that are already existing in the world. And so sometimes, a child, a teenager, an adult, a human being, all of these seeds that we have as a, as as as. A living being, we have inherited all of this ancient wisdom. It just needs the right landscape for it to manifest. And sometimes, a retreat brings out the wisest children, the wisest teenagers, and the wisest adult. Like we had this boy; his name is Kai. He's only eight years old, and it was his first time in Plum Village. But his mother's a practitioner. So I would say that the mother already has transmitted many wisdom to him, but when he was in this in this retreat, he is being watered by spoken words, by presence, by connection with children. The children, they just know you don't cuss here; you just use a different language here, and they are more observant and so on. And if they do use a word that is Maybe not so kind. We would, we would not um, yell at them, but we would inform and find a way to communicate that 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 language is um, is um, not helpful here, and it waters many other seeds in 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 people. And we share about the responsibility of co-creating this space together. Um, so this child Kai, I I I I saw him sitting at a pool, and. He was holding a pebble, and he was definitely deep in reflection. And I was like, so curious. And I was like, Kai, what are you contemplating? Eight years old, okay. And he said, Well, I'm holding this pebble, and if this pebble represents a good deed, and if I throw it in the pond, and I know it will ripple, then it. Seems like my good deeds will have such impact to the whole pond. So it is important to cultivate good deeds. Is that right? And I, in my mind, I'm like, this is I'm a Zen master in my presence, and I just wanted to bow to him, and I wanted to say, "Teach me more, young Zen master. Teach me more." And I'm so happy I get to share it in in this podcast because it was. Such a profound moment. He wasn't showing off. He he wasn't trying to be smart or anything. He was really contemplating, and his mother was so taken back from it. And she asked him, "Did you learn that today from the children program?" And he said, "No, it it just came up as a thought." And that made me reflect also, like, so who taught him this? And and for me, that's not even important. It's about the environment. The 
the space that is being co-created here. And we had one teenage boy this week who was a little bit rude, and um, the monks were 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 reflecting to see if we should invite him out of the program because he was a little bit disrespectful to some of our volunteers and so on. But one brother just went up to him and spoke to him like a friend and said, look, you have a natural quality of leadership and all the other boys look up to you. So your way of being is affecting our whole group. And I would like to invite you to be a responsible leader and to support us monastics in this program. And he shifted, he changed, and he stayed with the program. And so sometimes it's not about changing them. It's about seeing them, meeting them at where they are and to understand. And of course, our brother asked, what's troubling you? And family issue has been troubling him and it's made him very angry and aggressive. And therefore his behavior has been very rude and because he doesn't know how to handle it. But when also we bring back the ball in his court, it's like, be with us, like be a part of the team. And so it's also the way of the energy that the monastic, that brother brought to him was just like, I'm not here to tell you that you're right or wrong, but I'm just showing you some of the qualities that you have. And can you use it with responsibility? So for me, like this retreat is all, I'm always learning. We're learning as a community. We're learning collectively. And it's giving insights by just being together. And the infants, I learn so much from them. And I see, I see the way that they're able to blossom like a flower. Their smiles that they have is so genuine. And they know who is peaceful. They connect to that. I met two babies. I've never met them. And they just offer me some of the brightest smile. And it is like an immediate connection right away. And there was this one child, I was sitting with the parents. And the parent asked me before they left um, on the last week, on the second week of our retreat, they asked me for some advice for parents, how to manage time, to have time for their child and to have time for themselves. And somehow I went into a little bit of... Um, I, I think Tai came alive in me and and I said, well, the first thing I want to share is that already in your question, when you're dividing the time, that is dualistic thinking, that's discrimination. For me, your child is you. How about changing the view when you are with the child? That is your time. Because that is you. So that when you are with the child, you're giving the child your full presence. And giving yourself to the child in that moment, you're also taking care of yourself. You're taking care of the inner child in you. You're taking care of the generations of ancestral mothers that have been in your family or father or parents. 
And it's a deep transmission moment. And it can also be a deep healing moment. You can be transmitting all of the negative habit energy that you have received, or you can transform all of those seeds in this moment by learning to be a loving mother, an understanding mother, a compassionate father, a forgiving father, a compassionate and inclusive parent. So there's so much happening in that moment of you and the child. So I've learned to see, because my life with the community is like this. It's like, people always ask me, brother, how do you have time for yourself? I'm like, well, for me, the time with the community is time for myself. And when those nugget moments come where I do have space for myself, that is also time for the community because I am caring for myself. Therefore, I am caring for the community. And as parents, I would like to shift the narrative and uh, the way of seeing parenting of like having time, like, and for all the parents, please have compassion on me. I am a monk. I don't have kids like, like all of you. Um, but my, my, my time with my brothers and sisters, and sometimes I do feel like a parent, <laughs> um, <laughs> is, is to see, is to, to remind ourselves that moments of deep love is time for oneself. Moments of care, moments for being with others is time for oneself also. And when you shift that narrative, your your energy changes. And suddenly your love becomes more boundless. You are channeling and practicing non-self and you're also practicing um, self selflessness. And that is one of the deepest wisdom of Buddhism. And of course, it is so important to have moments when parents can be together and you can be with yourself. And those moments will come. And when they come, you know how to enjoy and you know how to take care and you know how to be fully there for yourself. But not to have like a set schedule of like, this is um, parent time, this is alone time, this is work time, and so on and so on and so on. And I feel like that kind of structure has divided our society so much as well as has um, put all of us in different boxes. And I think like when Tai holds a child's hand and allows the children to be at the front, that is also breaking the, the system. Brother, thank you. And what I hear, think I hear you saying in part, um, but just to just to focus on this for a moment, is that people often are looking for how do they develop their parenting skills. And what I hear you saying is become a mindful practitioner and then you will be a better parent. You can't be a better parent outside of yourself if you're not actually understanding yourself more because often and we all do it in our various ways as parents we project onto our children sometimes we say sometimes we are 
hurt in the way we were as children and being parented. And we say, I'm never going to let my child suffer the way I have. And then, and then parents might overemphasize that behavior and actually push them in completely the opposite direction. Um, sometimes if, if uh, a, a child who's grown up feels that they were abandoned as a child, they will be there constantly for their child. They will, they will go to the other extreme. Um, and I think, you know, the answer to that is actually to come back to yourself, to heal your own wounds, not to live life vicariously. I know that my father, um, when he grew up, he had this dream of uh, doing law at university and, and he was not able to fulfill that because of the war and because of his circumstances. And then as his children, you know, the, with his children, including myself, I mean, I was I was the younger, so it didn't really affect me, but he wanted everyone to do law at university. So he wanted everyone, in a sense, to live the life that he didn't live, which is wonderful on one level because he thought that would be a great life, but it's not, you cannot force your children to be someone that you want them to be. And so maybe this is a good moment, brother, to talk about it in the uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's 14 mindfulness trainings. So there are five mindfulness trainings, and then there are also 14 mindfulness trainings. That one of the trainings talks about um, how to treat children. Uh, well, how to treat actually adults, but very much includes children. And and when I read it for the first time, it I sort of I sort of looked very shy to myself because I realized that what he said we shouldn't do, I had tried them all. And <laughs> so I wonder, brother, if um I know we discussed this just before um we started, but I don't know if you have it available because actually it would be really good just to hear that part, that training. And just to maybe have a moment to reflect on it. This is the training, freedom of thought. Aware of the suffering brought about when we impose our views on others, we are determined not to force others, even our children, by any means whatsoever, such as authority, threat, money, propaganda, or indoctrination, to adopt our views. We are committed to respecting the rights of others to be different, to choose what to believe and how to decide. We will, however, learn to help others let go of and transform fanaticism and narrowness through loving speech and compassionate dialogue. Wow. Thank you, brother. So yes, I did I did um, fail in all those at different moments of, of my parenting. Um and and that's a tough gig because actually, you know, as parents, if we're tired, we're busy, we're trying to get our kids to do something, we, we you know, a lot of parents resort to those methods. Yeah. Authority, I'm the one in power because when a child is refusing to do something, a parent can feel powerless about we use money, like pocket money or treats. I mean, there's all sorts of ways we try to force our children to sort of, in a sense, um, fit in with what's, what works for us mm. and what we believe is best for them. So often it comes from a place of love. And I know, brother, you're not um, a direct parent, although, as you say, your 
some of your monastic siblings sometimes as the abbot feel like you're you're the parent but is there anything else you want to say about that about um how do we stay in our compassion and deep listening when we're dealing with a child and i know this is not about giving parenting advice but when we have a child who maybe is not doing what we want or is being rude or is not being respectful mm. it's a it's 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 a very tough place for parents yeah yeah i think this mindfulness training it has um um many teachings in it and and i think first you know freedom of thought is is to talk about all of the views that we have what is right and what is wrong what is happiness what is success and the natural pattern that we all see is that when our own childhood we haven't had something um it becomes a big void in our hearts and then when we have children we want them to succeed where we failed and this is a very classic um suffering in a lot of asian family <laughs> and tight speak about it to the asian community and one of his example was um a mother who comes to plum village a lot and through her own practice she realized that when she was young she always wanted to wear a red dress but they never had enough money and her whole life has just to 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 overcome poverty and when she has succeeded and she has a child instead of giving the child the freedom of what to wear she always imposed the child to wear a red dress to the point that one day the child rebels and said i don't want to wear that red dress anymore which in that moment which is a very a very simple request is just not to wear a red dress the mother felt so betrayed and so hurt and thanks to the practice she realized that that love that she thought was offering to her child was not the freedom that she really wanted to offer but it was her own inner child that was was suffering and so we have to be as parents um we have to have freedom of of allowing openness to be there of course the child is you so the child has a lot of your seeds and maybe yes some of them will continue your some of your wonderful talents but at the same time some of them will want to expand in a different field because they also have seeds from their whole ancestral lineage which is generations to generations from generations to friend from generations so love can be very suffocating but love can also be very healing and very free so freedom of thought is where there should be understanding there needs to be a dialogue in any relationship also to our children and sometimes we forget no that that we have all of all of the answers so they just listen to us and that's a wrong view and of course the other side is you know however we will learn to help those let go of wrong views and let go of wrong actions so in you know in a bodhisattva vow you know when you go to a temple 
um, in the Mahayana tradition, you see these two statues. One is of a demon with swords, uh, has a horn, um, but it also has like Dharma instrument. And then one that is very kind, very loving, um, has like holding flowers and etc. It's, it's to say we have to balance the two. And sometimes we, ha- we do have to be strict. We have to have firmness. Sometimes we say um, love can be very, very bitter sometimes because like w- when we eat bitter melon, it's not tasty, but it's very good for you. Sometimes some of the medications that we take, herbal or Western, it doesn't taste good, but it is exactly what we need in that moment. So there is structure that is important like in the monastic life that we have if a monastic is not behaving like a monk we will talk about it if they are doing things that that is against um, our practice and our vows sometimes we have to disrobe a monastic we have to have firmness we have to have um, clarity for right action in order to to guide that person in the right direction. And friendship is also a kind of love, right? Sometimes I see myself, my relationship with Tai is like a friend. And sometimes I suffer and what Tai tells me is very hard to hear, but it's the truth. Where is it coming from? It's coming from love. It's coming from experience. And it's coming from the wish for me to succeed, for me to grow. So... There is um, there is space for us to have strictness, rules, and also love and care. And so there has to be a very um, beautiful dance between all of this and mindfulness as a foundation, right mindfulness. And like you said, Joe, like a, a mindful parent can help themselves as well as help the next generation. And Tai um, used to tell us in Dhamma Talks and to tell all the parents, like, don't expect Plum Village like a transformation box. Like you put a child in one end and you expect them to come out <laughs> like an angel, you know? <laughs> and sometimes you, sometimes there is that intention to bring the children to the monastery and, and expect us to change them. Um, but that's not how it works. Like we, <laughs> we're, we're here to water the good seeds in them. Yeah, thank you, brother. And and actually, children are a wonderful bell of mindfulness because actually they press all of our buttons because they often break the rules in the way that adults don't with each other. They speak sometimes truths that are uncomfortable and that we don't want to hear. And, um, and you know, what I think I failed to do sometimes, and I, I think if I had, I mean, this is the classic thing about parenting, that if you had your kids when you're older and wiser, then you would hopefully uh, behave in a different way. But I, I know that sometimes um, when uh, an anger or uh, or a frustration arose in me, that I had no capacity of dealing with it at that time. And so then it came out as a as a wish to punish and um and especially when there's that sort of perceived if there's a perception of a of a difference in authority i'm the adult you're the child i'm i'm have the authority you should do what you're told you know you're immediately 
not giving space to listen deeply listen to the child because it's power over rather than a recognition of community with and um and the fact that sometimes children are giving us our best opportunity to to see where our wounds are and to work with them and and if we do that more effectively then we can be present for the kids but if we don't then actually it's it's creates separation yeah you know um uh, there's one mother who came and she shared with me that um her child said mother you work so much i want i want to have more connection with you and that broke her and she cried and she realized that in that moment she wants to be different than her mother because her mother worked so much in her lifetime and she vowed not to walk in those footsteps and it is exactly what she did and that child became the bell of mindfulness for her and when that child said that she said this year we're going to plum village I know I've said so many times we should go to Plum Village we should go to Plum Village we should go to Plum Village and finally they came together and it's moments like this you know if we listen also to our children we can we can wake up from our own cycle of suffering yes so for me you know children are also wonderful companions on this path Yes. Brother one one other area I just want to bring in is um because actually what we're doing is having actually a broad discussion around children. Yeah. <laughs> in all sorts of ways. And I just want to bring in Ty's teaching uh, because teachings here because you a couple of times mentioned about the inner child. And um and often sort of work around healing our inner child is associated purely with sort of western psychology rather than zen buddhism. Um one of the things that was very clear to me when I came uh, into the orbit of the Plum Village tradition is that Thai greatly uses this understanding for our healing and he often um we'll do meditations around you know that seeing our father and our mother as five year olds and um and my observation of that and engagement is is it's a deep healing pathway because often when we are looking at let's say our parents or someone else in authority someone who maybe has caused us harm that we sort of see them only in that association of adults and we're unable to connect to our compassion or to understand um why it is that they may be behaving in that way and yet when we are able to see those people as little children who may have suffered may have been left alone may have been abused in some way then actually what naturally arises us in us is a compassion and a wish to support and love um so I'm, it'd be really helpful i think brother for our listeners to to have a sort of understanding of 
how did Thai is is this a sort of Buddhist tradition, or actually, when Thai came to the West, did he actually see that this was a a particular issue in the West, and actually has brought in some psychological tools? But but it's something that is very powerful, is used often, and seems to have a deep impact here. Yes, um, I would say that the wisdom is very ancient, but the um, articulation is from um, from Thai's. Learning of being in 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 the West and seeing very clearly that the suffering of most of us has roots to our childhood <laughs> and our our way of being acting. It all has a channel from the happiness or the suffering of childhood. And we and many trauma therapists now speak about that, and many psychiatrists um, know help people link to the source of suffering. But for us, that's ancient wisdom, which is suffering and the the root of our suffering. Where does our suffering come from? And it's a meditation. That is that is the main um, energy why the Buddha seek the path to. Liberate oneself from suffering. So, our teacher, when when he started to establish um, the Plum Village community and work with so many families that come, he realized of that inner child wound that everyone has, and he used the age of five as our meditation. But it can be eight years old, nine years old, or even four years old. And not to be caught by that. And what you explained, Joe, is exactly that. Meditation is not about. Um, I, I know sometimes it's so hard to forgive the um, our the actions of our parents or the actions of our maybe abuser or a perpetrator, right? Yeah. So I I've had to work on this a lot. And what we learned in Buddhism is that um, when somebody makes someone else's suffer, it's because they have suffered so much and they haven't transformed it. Therefore, they they only know the way to feel good about themselves is to see other hurt, so that they feel affiliated towards. Because oh, I suffer, and if you suffer. It makes me feel good, and all of us we have this in us. It's not just um, the ones who have hurt us, because we have received that. So there's a deep part that we have it in us too, and meditation is to recognize that wound. And first, we we work on ourselves. We we start to accept our own wounds that we have that we've been neglecting, the inner child that has been crying and that needs care. To to tell the child that it can live deeply in this present moment with who you are now, and to teach the child that you are enough, that you do have the capacity of loving, of protecting, of healing, of transforming, and then the next step in our meditation, it is also to reflect on the one who have hurt us, and is to see that. They are somebody 
who has suffered, and maybe in their childhood, they have been abused, they have been hurt, they have been bullied, they have been um, mis been misused, been um, yeah, they have been misused, and and they don't know what love is. And so, when we have understanding, we can start to generate a mind that can see them as a human being that suffers. Therefore, our heart, our own being, we become more gentle towards that person. Not to say, I accept you for what you've done, but it is you act because you suffer and there's ignorance. And I can pray that you find somebody who teaches you to love, that teaches you to transform. And I hope that you, in this lifetime, have the opportunity to begin anew so that, so that you can experience love in your heart. And so in that, in that transformation of mind, I still see that person as a human being. And I do have the capacity to love them. I've even gone far enough to have the capacity to even forgive those who have really hurt me. And because that forgiveness is, is a scar that I have healed in me. So that when I see their children, I don't see their parents. And I still see them for who they are and for all of the wonderful conditions that they are, have inherited. And I want to water the good seeds in them and maybe help also transform the suffering that they have received from their parents. So this work of the five-year-old um, inner child on oneself, but also reflecting, reflecting it on our parents also allows us to have acceptance. For example, some of the people who have been such a part of my life who, but I know in this lifetime they won't transform and I've accepted it. They're just so attached to their suffering and they are so used to their way of life. They are not ready and willing to let go. And a part of me is, I wish that they would, you know, see the light and change, but I also accept. And therefore, but every time I'm with them, I will water good seeds in them. And so we, it is to transform also this mentality of trying to fix everything. Not everything is fixable. So this is, I know is everyone hearing this, it can be very challenging. Um, but it's something to meditate on. It's something to reflect on because in this moment, we have, we have suffered and the Buddha has taught us of this teaching of the second arrow. We have experienced something, but if we don't remove that arrow, that wound will keep bleeding and we will always be in pain. And most of the time, what we also do is we add more arrows to it. We add through our way of thinking, through our um, own action from the leak of that pain, so we add more arrows to the suffering and it it's exactly that's that same spot. So we suffer even more. So the meditation on suffering instead of 
um, trying to change the person who have hurt us, we forget to take care of ourselves first, to to heal, to pull that arrow out, to mend the wound, and then to let that wound heal, and then to learn from that wound and have more loving action. But a lot of times we don't see that. And then we act from that and we create more and more suffering. Our teacher always says, we don't need to create suffering, more suffering. There's enough suffering when we look inside of ourselves, and hell is not exactly somewhere outside. It is present. And all of us who are practitioner by our transformation is the transformation of, of hell that is present and heaven is not somewhere in the sky or it is not after after death but heaven is the transformation of our journey of our our healing process and the love and the happiness and the peace that we can cultivate today Beautiful. Thank you, brother. And um, just to add one thing to that, um, and I, I see this in a number of people I work with, is that when people contemplate on their childhood, what they're doing is contemplating with the context of being an adult, where you can look back and you can say, oh, yes, well, that happened, but also, but at, at the time I know this person was dif- finding difficulty and, you know, yes, I did get over it and I'm, I'm, built a career so I'm fine and I find what's very helpful is to go back as a child to know yourself as a child to know what it's like to feel that deep pain of rejection and not to get stuck in that but firstly to really feel what these feelings are like because I think that's why they cause this pain and suffering throughout our lives is because it's like original pain it's like um, Ty talks about the original pain of giving birth, even to be, even to be born. There's suffering because there's separation, and there's a feeling of you know of being removed from your mother's womb, and so so and and that pain is is so strong because we have no context for it, and as children we often don't have any context, and um, and I once did the meditation of imagining my parents as five-year-olds and also imagining myself as a five-year-old with them. And, and I, and that took away all the sort of power issues, age issues, authority issues. And essentially we're all children, you know, at the core, we all have this, as you spoke at the beginning about this wish, this curiosity, this depth of knowing without, an intellectual knowing. We, we all have those capacities. And when we meet at the level of children with children, then there is friendship, there's openness, there's, there isn't even the need necessarily for forgiveness because actually there's just, because the problem hasn't arisen at that moment. And, um, and the other thing, brother, is, uh, and we, we of course 
say this many times in in these podcasts, but always with a different flavor, is that um, you know the heart of uh, mindfulness is the being in the present moment, and um, and that we heal the past in the present moment. I think a lot of people feel that you have to go back into the past and try and heal it in the past. Well, we need to understand the past, but we can only heal it in the present moment. And when we do heal it or start to heal in the present moment, then we change the future. And and I very much see that in our relationship to us as children and to if you're a parent to the children you have, is that when you're able in the present moment to understand the pain of oneself as a child and to start healing it, then we start to let go of it in our own children at whatever age they are because what tends to happen is we pass on the pain and we you've talked about generational pain unless something is healed it gets passed on because the next child will witness that pain and will soak it up either because they think that's normal behavior or because they try and swallow it from their parents to to take it away from their parents because they want their parents to be happy and that's their their key wishes for their parents to be happy not for them to themselves to be happy so that actually I find a great motivation for people is that when they recognize they're doing their own healing, they're not only doing their own healing, they're healing the past. So they're actually healing the wound that was felt in maybe their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents. And then they're changing the future, especially with their own children, because, because you know you don't need to pass it on anymore. And your children will see that you're different and that it's not normal, it's not something they have to take on to save them. So I find that sort of just, you know, so many of Zen practices, Thai's practices, the Plum Village tradition, actually give us the possibility to deeply develop our relationship with our children at whatever age. You know, I, I came to the practice, um, not that, you know, I'd done other other self-development, but I, but I came to the practice when my children were already in their teens. Um, and and it's taken me, you know, it's, uh, I think the, the last episode we said, there are no quick fixes, so it's taken me time to develop these practices. But each time I make a move forward, I'm able to be with my children in a new way and in a way that gives them more space, allows me to love them for who they are, allows me to offer tender love but not to believe that they should be in a in a they should act in this way or that way but just to be present for them so uh so i've come late to an understanding but um as i say to people i work with it you know it doesn't matter when you come to it that it doesn't matter whether you're 20 or 30 or 40 or even 60 or 70 you know any age we can start that healing journey that heals us, heals the past, and actually supports our children. Wow. Um, brother, thank you for that. I think we, we, we actually chose just, we were, we were sitting in front of the microphones and saying, what should we talk about today? And, we, and I thought, well, we're in the middle of the children's and family retreats, so maybe we should talk about that. But it's gone, of course, in a thousand wonderful directions, but always coming back to the heart of the teachings. Um, so, brother, thank you for your wisdom and um, and for the stories of Thai. So 
and your own stories. It's so wonderful. We know that we often learn best when we are hearing stories and and um and when the stories touch us deeply is often when we learn more than by reading a book. So thank you for those sharings. So brother, um rather I know you normally do a live guided meditation, but there actually is on the Plum Village app um a meditation of the five-year-old. So maybe uh, we should just uh, take that from the Plum Village app. We'll add it in here. And But if you want to listen to it again, uh, you can find it with many other meditations on the Plum Village app. Breathing in, I see myself as a five-year-old child. Breathing out, I smile on the five-year-old child in me. A five-year-old child is always vulnerable. Fragile. And he or she can get hurt very easily. So you have to handle the five-year-old child in a very gentle way. If the five-year-old child as a flower get hurt, the wound will stay for a long time. And most of us have been five-year-old. And the inner child in us is still alive. And the little child in us, five year old, may still have uh, wounds within. That is why in this meditation, we go home and touch the five year old child in us. The five year old child that may be deeply wounded that you have neglected for a long time. The five-year-old trainers always try to call on us to pay attention to him or to her. Because you are so busy, you have had no time to go back to him or her. That's a pity. This morning, you have an opportunity. Breathing in, I see myself as a five-year-old child. Breathing out, I smile to the five-year-old child in me with compassion. 
in Abhya Otra, out, smiling with compassion. Now let us practice the next exercise. Breathing in, I see my father as a five-year-old child. You have not seen your father as a five-year-old child, but he had been a five-year-old child before he became a father. And as a five-year-old boy, he was also vulnerable, fragile and he could get hurt very easily by your grandpa, by your grandma, and by other people. So if sometimes he's rough, it's difficult. That is because of that. Because that he, that piece, because he had been hurt as a five-year-old child. And if you understand that, you don't get angry at him anymore. You have compassion to him. Because he had been a five-year-old child, and he may get a lot of uh, suffering, get hurt deeply during the time he was a five-year-old child. If you have a family album, if uh, in that album there is a picture of your father, five-year-old, that is a good object of meditation. Look at him when he was five-year-old and breathe in and out and see the five-year-old child that is still alive in him and in you also. And when you understand that as a five-year-old child, he suffered very much, he got hurt deeply and very often, you would understand why he had behaved, uh, sometimes he had behaved uh, very rude. And suddenly your anger will melt and you have compassion, and you feel much better. Breathing in, I see my father as a five-year-old child. Breathing out, I smile to that five-year-old boy who was my father. Let us practice together. Father, five-year-old boy, smiling to father with compassion. Breathing in, I see my mother as a five-year-old girl. 
written out, I smiled on that five-year-old girl that had been my mother. When my mother was five-year-old, she was also vulnerable, fragile, and she may get hurt, wounded very easily. And she may not have had uh, a teacher or a friend who helped her to heal. That's why the wound, the pain continues in her. That is why sometimes she behaves uh, not very kindly to you. You understand, because she had not been able to heal the pain in her. And if you can see your mother as a five-year-old vulnerable, fragile, you understand, and you can forgive her very easily with compassion. The five-year-old girl who had been your mother, always alive in her and in you. Breathing in, I see my mother as a five-year-old girl. Breathing out, I smile to that wounded five-year-old girl who was my mother. Mother as a five-year-old girl. Smiling to mother as a five-year-old girl with compassion. So thank you, dear listeners, for joining us today. Um, if you've enjoyed it, you can find all of our previous episodes on the Plum Village app and also on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all other podcast platforms. Um, if you like it, again, it'd be lovely if you could subscribe also to The Way Out Is In podcast on any platform of your choice. And it'd be lovely if you can leave a review. Or feedback. Or feed yes, constructive feedback may be the best way of saying it. Um, so that other people can uh, learn from uh, what you've learned. And you can also find all previous guided meditation in the On The Go section of the Plum Village app. And this podcast is co-produced by Global Optimism and the Plum Village app with support from the Tickinghan Foundation. If you feel inspired to support the podcast moving forward, please go to www.tnhf.org slash donate. And we want to thank our friends and collaborators, Clay, aka the podcast father and our co-producer, as well as Kata, 
Joe, our audio editing, brother Nim Tung, our audio engineer, Anka, show notes and publishing, Jasmine and Cindy, our social media garden angels. So it takes a whole community to also produce a podcast, brother. See you next time.